Today I'm speaking with Kevin Lyman. Kevin is the impresario of the longest running touring music festival in North America, the Vans Warped Tour. Now, I am not a follower of music festivals and certainly not festivals that highlight this kind of, you know, punk rock, a punk wave or whatever kind of rock music it is. I'm a follower of many kinds of music, but not that particular genre. And even I have heard of the Vans Warp Tour and I'm aware of how big and influential it has been in not only music culture and pop culture, but culture at large. And now he's very focused and passionate about mental health. Kevin's latest project is in partnership with the late Lincoln Park frontman, Chester Bennington's wife, Talinda Bennington. Chester Bennington, uh, lead singer of Lincoln Park, apparently suffered from mental health affliction of depression, and he took his own life. So those two have partnered together to create the very first, what's called the 320, which is uh, Chester Bennington's birthday, Mental Health Festival. So this is going to be a virtual event, and it's going to have panels on mental health and performances for mental health advocates. And that's from May 8th to 10th. And I will be joining. I'm, I'm very grateful that Kevin asked me to be a part of this. So I'll be there, and I'll be on a panel called Mental Health in the Entertainment Industry. And I'm obviously going to be talking about the connections between music, meditation, and mindfulness, and, of course, how there are tools in these practices that can help musicians and music lovers maintain a little bit more equilibrium, harmony, perspective, and composure in their lives. It also should be noted that this episode was recorded before the quarantining from the pandemic, so we didn't know then that the festival's going to be online. And quickly, I'll just mention also that I'll be on a Facebook live stream on the MMR Magazine Facebook page, where we'll be talking about the book, In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness. Okay, so let's get started with Kevin. Okay, welcome, Kevin Lyman. It's a thrill and a pleasure to see you today here at the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for coming. So uh, I was just looking at a piece of paper that how all these awards you've won. Now, I'm I, whoops, sorry, touch the microphone here. Uh, I've met people that have won awards, but you've won the best kind of award, which is humanitarian awards, philanthropic. You won award for Music Cares, from the T.J. Martell, mainly music business philanthropies, which is uh, just incredible because I've never met anybody like that before. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you don't set out in this business to win awards. I don't think anyone who starts out playing a guitar thinks that they're going to end on the stage for a Grammy. But for me, my, it was my background as a production person was, you know, we could always do a little bit of good. So, you know, my business philosophy has always been embed some philanthropic thought into your plan each and every day and it becomes natural. And I think that's how it worked. And it was never going out looking for awards or something. But sometimes it is nice to be recognized by your peers and other people in the business for the work you've put in, even though, you know, wasn't expecting it. Right. So you ran these incredibly successful tours, one of them being the Warp Tour. And you talk about embedding good values or education into your 
behavior or interactions with the artists that were on tour. Could you give us an example of what you would do? Well, I think a lot of, a lot of the stuff for me was, you know, growing up in Los Angeles and, and growing up east of Los Angeles in a city called Claremont. It was kind of a hippie town. It really, you know, if you looked at it, the straight, they used to call it the Santa Cruz South. Right. Uh, it was a college town. Uh, a lot of music. Uh, David Lindley, Jackson Brown used to hang out there when I was uh, young. And I, I would hang around these people and they were always doing some sort of benefit for something. You know, it was no nukes or they were doing, you know, one as, as simple as there was a great peace march across America and these people got stuck in the desert and all they wanted was Parmesan cheese for their noodles. So we immediately threw a benefit show to raise that. And then as I gravitated to the punk rock world, you know, um, as I went into college and kind of gravitated to L.A., and I started realizing that a lot of the punk philosophy and the hippie philosophy was the same. They just maybe presented themselves in a different way, that we wanted to uh, make our communities better. We really did. We were, you know, in punk, sometimes that came out in anger um, towards some of the things in their lives. But I always felt that we could do something, and then... Early on, you know, I look back now and and great mentor, uh, honestly, was a guy named Gary Tovar. He was the founder of Golden Voice. And Mm. we were always doing benefit shows for someone. It was like we did the first Rock the Boat choice. Uh, We did the first Rock for Choice show. Uh, We were doing uh, shows, you know, it was so crazy because everyone, there was a, artists were able to do benefit shows back then. They weren't so dependent on touring for that income off of touring. So we were always, it was like every three weeks we were doing another benefit at the Palladium. It was always seems like the Palladium and the Beastie Boys, the Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, you know, and some mix mash of those bands and, you know, all the way down to like get Angelo or Chris Dowd from Fishbone out of jail, you know, when, you know, we had to get them out of jail at one point. So we did a benefit show for him, legal defense funds. Um, I think it was embedded in me early on that we can. And then I, as I started to, assume more of my own control over my career. You know, I said, you know, we're going to do this. So the beginning of Warp Tour in 1995, right away added 25 cents a ticket to charity. Uh, oh, wow. You know, it was a uh, first time I controlled that. We put 25 cents on a ticket. And uh, even though we were out losing money that first year and I had no idea how I was going to pay the bills, even though we, we, we managed to do that, we still carved out that ticket where a lot of people were saying, if the show made a profit, we'll give to charity. I'm like, no, this is taken right off the top. So Warp became a giant classroom and uh, people would come down with a small nonprofit maybe and want to have a table. And then, you know, a lot of, you know, it's strange now I hear that people maybe charge charity sometimes to set up their shows. And I'm like, no, you set up. I was doing shows like uh, Boarding for Breast Cancer, uh, for Breast Cancer Awareness. I was doing Board Aid, which was uh, snowboarding, skateboarding, and music up in the mountains. And then that turned into Warped and... uh, I started giving platforms. So it was really interesting for Keep Abreast, the I Love Booby campaign that became very prominent for a while, started really in the parking lots of Warped uh, to write Love on Her Arms. I, I started noticing uh, people were cutting themselves. I didn't understand it and found an organization in Florida run by Jamie Towowski and gave him a platform to come on a national level. And through the years, that just kind of kept rolling. So how did that work? Um, you know, we would just kind of put them on tour buses and bring these people on the road. And then they would, you know, build up their networks because you know we would do about a half a million tickets a year and i always believe if you're having fun you're more than willing to learn so everything i do always has a, a fun right, component it could right. be a heavy subject but you should be able to have fun while you had an it. app fen right fun fen yeah fen, right? full energy no drugs but we would do these things and we would you know we it just started growing and then people would bring me ideas and say hey there's a problem that we should tackle um, there was a blood shortages 
during the summertime because people weren't donating blood. Would you give everyone that donates blood a free ticket? And that first summer I said, well, that's not really a good business model because if you're giving everyone a free ticket, I can't stand business, but we'll give them all a backstage pass. So we tried that out in LA and over 2,500 people went to blood drives uh, organized before our tour. Some yeah. parents go, wait, you took blood at the Warp Tour? I said, yeah, we, you know, we took their blood, gave them a cookie, threw them back in the mosh pit after they had drank their orange juice. Yeah. No, this was pre-tour. And we did 3,000 people. So then that became a national campaign. It never really inflicted in what we did. We changed it to earning uh, music download cards and CDs at one point, um, the chance to go backstage. And we became the largest independent blood drive in North America for multiple years, for six or seven years, we were uh, collecting over 60,000 pints of blood each summer. Right. And that turned into uh, food. When we had to hear the food banks were being shut down and, and uh, some of the promoters were charging kids $5 to skip the line to get in first. And I said, not at my shows. They could donate $5 to the local food bank or bring three cans of food. So that turned to Feed Our Children Now, which was we were collecting 450,000 pounds of food out there during the road that would stay in the local communities. And you have to be careful that the nonprofit side of your business doesn't overwhelm what you're doing. And then in the last few years, you know, and as I saw more and more artists, uh, potentially, I was learning more about social media and I was learning about some of the stuff that was going on online and stuff. And, you know, the world's so fast paced and technology doesn't keep up with the adolescent brain. So people were getting themselves in trouble for things that maybe were maybe semi viewed as, as adolescent behavior when we grew up, but our brains would usually catch up and tell us it was wrong. Right. So I found an organization because I was trying to real learn in real time. I've never gone to school for this. I've never been trained in it. I have no certificates in it. So I found an organization of Voice for the Innocent because I found out, you know, sexual abuse and online harassment, things like that. So I found an organization and helped them become a national organization. Uh, we took hope for the day with suicide. We have the highest rate of teen suicide in America. I started putting that together to some of the pressures of social media. So I found an organization uh, with Johnny out of Johnny Bouchard out of Chicago, and you know we're traveling on the road, and we'd, we'd have over ninety nonprofits throughout the summer with us. Some would be local, some would be on the tour with That's us. That's just so mind-boggling. I mean, running the gamut from blood donation to feeding the hungry. I mean, it's just incredible to... Yeah, you know, sometimes people would say, well, you know, Kevin, you need to pick a cause. And I think if you're a person of the world, sometimes you realize that there's so many little components when you are at a certain point in your life where you do have some say over a large group of people, that is the time when you have to really try to capitalize on what you're doing. Um, I've narrowed it down at different times. Uh, I had a lot of friends who were suffering, no health insurance, no things. And, and that led me to Music Cares. Right. So I transferred that 25 cents at one point to Music Cares from any one of the tours I do. What do you mean the 25 cents? 25 cents of every ticket I've ever sold on a concert. You donated, donated to Music to, Cares. To, cha to charities. And that became Music Cares, became a good big part of that. And now Music Cares, what do they do exactly? Well, Music Cares was helped, you know, it's, it's known as a addiction recovery was kind of like if right. you're a lot of people's first introduction to right. it. They would so be help some, a manager or someone or an artist if they were having trouble, uh, get them into recovery. Great people over there, Harold That's and right. everyone we all know. Um, they do really good work. And then I started learning they do other things. And I started realizing that people were having problems with their teeth before they went on the road. And became my problem when they show up with bad teeth, a lot of times maybe came from meth, using meth at some point in their life. And I said, wait, if 
if this person's tooth goes bad in Texas, sometimes I can't get it fixed until we're in Milwaukee and we're trying to chase this problem. Let's, you know, let's try to address this problem before it becomes something that, you know, affects us. So how many people that run festivals worry about a musician that has a problem with their teeth? I don't think that, I mean, people listening to this, I don't think that's a common thing that you'll find no, among but, promoters of concerts. No. I, I, Why I, did you feel responsible if a musician is having a toothache that you had to fix it? Maybe I was one of the first people that came from a guy who loaded trucks, who threw people off of barricades. I started out in the clubs. I worked 320 nights a year and would spend time with these artists that were living in vans and traveling. Maybe... You know, most festivals were started by an artist, a successful artist that was already successful. Um, I, I always, you know, like I said, somehow I figured out how to balance. Um, I've always gotten along better on the loading dock than I did in the VIP box. Mm -hmm. That's just my world coming from that nuts and bolts world. So understanding the, the grind of the road, the, the working what we do, maybe has lended me to under, understanding that. So if I could help someone, then, you know, hearing now, I'm sitting here with you and I could barely hear you because my ears ring so bad. I wish someone had told me about taking care of my ears. Mm -hmm. So when I get an opportunity to give a crew person who maybe not be able to afford it, or an artist, a lot of artists can't afford, you know, a nice set of earplugs right. or ear molds. Right. I'm going to give them that opportunity. And we've given over 500 artists and crew people ear molds through my tours. Um, and that's Music Care has lent, lent some support to be able to do that. So, you know, it's it's spinning. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm very current because I feel like I'm in, in the middle of it. And more recently, you know, mental health is becoming more of, an, right. of the discussion. Right. Now, So you noticed that when running a festival, running a tour with a lot of musicians, you started to notice there was a pattern of uh, mental health issues, psychological issues. Yeah. Is that I, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I go back to developing those tools I had could probably, you know, it was a real catalyst in 1995. Um, I was on that first warp tour, pretty much fighting for my own survival because I was out on a limb doing something that no one had ever done in many ways, um, especially the way I was doing it. And I traveled with a, an artist uh, named Brad Knoll. Um, some of your listeners will know him as the, the, the lead singer of Sublime. And me and Brad, and I, I worked with them all the time. And, you know, they were always this, he was one of the most amazingly creative musicians and writers I had ever met. Right, very famous. But constantly yeah. fighting his own demons. Fighting, just fighting internally himself. Never, he had, he had a low self-esteem, mm -hmm. even though he's writing these amazing songs that went on to be amazing hits that sadly he never saw because he, he we would sit in a parking lot and talked late at night about having our first children. We were both having our first children in 1995, and we would talk about what it would be like to be a parent in the music business. Like, how's this going to be, and how we want to be good parents. Um, you know, and that's sometimes hard, because you're not gonna be coming home every day, nine to five job, and being with those kids, and being able to go to every soccer practice, or be part of their life, but how are we gonna do this? And then sadly, I knew he was struggling. I knew there was heroin, I knew there was pills, I knew there was a lot of alcohol, um, but it was the first, like, I didn't know, I didn't have the tools to more than have talk to him. And then we finished that tour about September 1st, and he died a few, you know, six weeks, seven weeks later, I got a call that he had passed away. And I said, you know, 
if I get lamb lucky enough to continue to do this, I'm going to do everything I can to help people avoid this situation. So I, I learned. How did he pass away? A heroin overdose. Right. He was up in San Francisco. They had just done a show. And, uh, and I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to keep doing the best I can. Now, sometimes I feel like I've been yelling into the wind mm-hmm. um, because I've really tried to stress and, and watching because I work with so many young artists. I've worked with so many artists early in their careers that they're put out, you know, we, we start talking, oh, this artist is breaking at 15. This artist is breaking at 15, 16 years old. Right. You know, the internet accelerated this, this ability to break. I mean, we're, we're seeing that right now with Billie Eilish. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much going on with her. I hope, I hope that there's people around her that are going to say, it's going to be time to take a break. It's going to be a time to slow this down. Right. Um, as mature as she comes off and everything, your brain just, it's the processing. It's not, you know, I, I read more that, you know, it's not developed until you're 25. You're not making complete, that I just hope there's people there and I'm worried because I've seen it happen. This, this, this business, and you had sadly say that, but maybe this business is now paying attention like big business is paying attention to the opioids right. or when we paid attention to the AIDS epidemic. But when it crossed out of a segment of the population, it became more of a mass exposure, but st- the music industry, and you know, I always people are going to always I always say something that someone will take attack, and this will be it. But we're a commodity. You're a commodity. You're, if you're a singer, if you're a, a crew person, a tech person, whatever you are, we're, we're a commodity. And when that commodity, there's it's viewed out in business. There's going to be the cost of doing business. You're going to lose a few things. If you're a pig farmer, you're going to lose a few pigs. But when you start losing your prize hogs mm-hmm. and not to refer music to right. but people are going to look i'm losing money here and you know what sadly we're a microcosm of society and when people start looking at it that business is being disrupted people pay attention and i go back to what we think right now you know the 90s was a time i guess would be maybe my kind of like coming to my own. I was a first stage manager of Lollapalooza. Um, I worked very closely with Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, you know, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. I did a lot of their shows. We've lost a whole generation of how big business, if you're maybe an owner of a national promoter here, these were the people that were going to fill your arenas. And we're continuing to lose. We're, you know, I mean, we just yeah. lost Juice World, right? Yeah, you know. Well, that's yeah. a whole other discussion with these yeah. artists that are blowing up off a of SoundCloud. And so quickly, and the money comes so quickly, and they have no teams around them. They're managed yeah. by their friends. Uh, yeah. Maybe the societal areas where you grow up. I used to have a good friend, Ice-T, said we're the same people. It's just a different neighborhood we grow up in sometimes. Right. And there's no one, there's no buffer between them and maybe the life they came from. So when a guy's flying around on private jets, if you had been surrounded by a certain element, they're going to learn how to exploit you. Because you know what? Moving weed on a private jet is a lot easier than in a commercial flight on, in, a, in, a, in a luggage, you know? And there was no one, and it really pissed me off yesterday when this came out, when they said that they were, they were waiting to bust him. And a lot of people were talking online yesterday, and I was like, I was sitting in my backyard with people, and I go, are you f-ing kidding me? That's all I said was, this is so f***ed up. 
that this, he couldn't separate himself from the world that maybe he'd been in just because of where he grew up to where he was going and there was no one in between doing that. No one there. And someone's going to exploit you wherever you are, especially when you're young, unless you have good mentors around you. And you know what? Maybe this is going to wake up these labels. Maybe it's going to wake up these management companies, the promoters. I think we're seeing a little bit of a that. Little bit. A, a little bit. A, a little bit. A little bit. But we have a long way to go. Long, it's been going on in every genre. You know, every, yeah. every we've had these afflictions, the four horsemen of the yeah. musical apocalypse. It's anxiety, yeah. depression, addiction, and suicide. And like you say, there's no support. There's no, there's no solution for it until now. Now people are starting to get more aware of these problems and trying to address and, them. And in to some be way. aware is going to take an investment by the industry for the long term. If you want to have people filling your arenas that were artists in 2000s, late 2000s, and you want them there 20 years from now, you better help them prepare to be there. Because there's a moment in time where we're, we're just, it's just too many things, too many. And uh, maybe I are, but you know, I was yelling into the wind, you know, three, four years ago, there was a group of, um, of counselors and therapists that were willing to, sp I had an idea that maybe before you send your first band on tour, before they go on their first tour, bring these people in. It wasn't going to cost, it was in the hundreds of dollars these people were willing to charge for a whole afternoon with a band to prep them right. in real life. It's what I'm seeing in the, you know, in the education world. There's now classes being offered at Stanford and Berkeley in adulting. They're actually offering classes to teach people because because people get so focused in their craft or what they're going to do at such a young age, they're not being ta taught any skills. So I brought this up, and it was you know, and I brought this up to many managers and agents. And not one of them really pursued it with me as something they'd want to do for their artists. And I said a label should insist that they go through this program before they sign them to that contract. You're talking about teaching them the basics. The basics of, of living. So, so living. Paying so, rent. So, well, uh, social media etiquette. Yeah. How to deal with crises. Understanding that the majority of drugs now are being cut by fentanyl. You lose that chance for experimentation. And I don't want to, you know, there was a moment in time like you did a line of coke. Eh, it probably wasn't going to kill you the first line. But now, we're, these drugs are being cut by fentanyl. Pretty soon, there will be nothing but fentanyl and everything, from what I've learned, huh. and spending time with people who are in the know. Yeah, and the thing about musicians is we're very sensitive, and they say there's a lot of vulnerability. And because musicians are vulnerable and show their vulnerability, the music fans relate to them. They have their own vulnerabilities, but they open themselves up to somebody else that's expressing their vulnerability. And that just lays us open to all these afflictions. Yeah. And yeah. what Rick Rubin said something very interesting, which is I'm going to plug a little bit of mindfulness here. Mm -hmm. He said that most people, musicians are sensitive, more sensitive than most. And most times people want to avoid pain. He says through meditation, I go deeply into the pain and that's how I relate to it and that's how I manage it. And I think, you know, as the industry's changed, you know, we talk about live being the economy of this business now. Right. Well, if live is the economy, 
you're on the road a lot more than you ever thought. You know, artists are finding themselves gone, traveling all the time. They're on the road. And I've, from witnessing what I, I have, I think we're, we're pushed sometimes into this kind of behavior out of boredom mm-hmm. and separation from the real world and what's really going on in maybe your network that was there before you were on the road. Uh-huh. You know, all the things that are going on around you back at home, people start growing into families or marriages or relationships or jobs or things. So I've always had this thing from my, I think my, my real philosophy, I've always taught it. I teach it at school or at the first class I teach. The day you go on the road is the day you have to start figuring out how to get off the road. Wow. You know, I, I'm like, that road life as a gypsy, when you're right out, you know, in your you know, late teens, early 20s, maybe till you're 30, it's, it's enchanting in a way. It's enchanting in a way because you don't have that responsibility, that responsibility that people are starting to face in life in some ways. We can avoid it. It's an avoidance. And then all of a sudden, the 30s, the money starts getting better if you're still doing it. But then the boredom sets in, the routine. You've been to every city. You've been to the, the, the same routine, and you medicate yourself to avoid that in some ways. And so during that 20s period, maybe you're medicating yourself because you don't want to face the fact that there's all these other people. It's a very complicated thing, but I, and everyone, it might be, you know, but there's a lot of textbook. We're, it's funny, more, the longer you go in life, you, you learn that there's other people like you and that we're kind of textbook. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think another factor is that when you're making music, it's a high. You know, you're going beyond yourself. You're connecting to all these people and, and you're transcending yourself. And it's a high. Oh, yeah. And then, this is where the boredom comes in. Then you have to climb down off the stage and you climb down off your high. Yeah, yeah. And you miss that high. And you're, maybe it's, you become bored and you look for a substitute high. And there comes your fentanyl, and there comes all your other, your alcohol or whatever. It's going to get you high off the stage. Or that high could be social media. You know? That's a, that's a less malvolent high than drugs and well, alcohol. You know, that high is, you know, it's, it's tricky. But it does, it does have its toxic uh, consequences. Absolutely. You know, um, and it's how to manage those. Right. Because, you know, you get to this point where, where you're kind of constantly being, pre- and then you're just, you're exposed by this stuff, you know? So I, I, I you know, for me, it was always like, I, I go, am I going to be someone who practices what I preach? You know, am I going to get off the road? You know, um, had I prepared to do that? You know, I've, I've, been, I've been part of a lot of successful businesses and different things outside of music. So I did some outside things and branding as I moved into using the knowledge I, I, I'd learned there. But where do I go? Because I felt, despite there's going to be some naysayers to what I did, there's people that don't like Kevin Lyman. I've exposed myself to some controversies, but usually they weren't created by myself, but it was me trying to react and be involved and try to help. 
that I took the heat for that, which was okay for a whole culture of music, which sometimes if you're going to be a leader, you're going to take the heat and you learn from that. And that's how I went out and found organizations that could help me navigate it and make it better maybe for the people behind me. But that's where I was like this fortuitous moment when it was like, okay, I've decided now that I'm going to end my touring career. I, you know, I had created Mayhem Festival. I've done Taste of Chaos. I've done Warp Tour. I've done this. What am I going to do kind of? I was like sitting there and, and, uh, that's when I was approached by the University of Southern California uh, and said, you'd be a good professor. Right. And I'm like, I'm me as a professor, I'm not really. And then and a few people came to me and some of the people that were doing adjunct over there were people who I'd mentored at some point of their lives or were mine. And it started to warm up, you know, in my mind, I was like, yeah, let's you know, we had some discussions at home and my wife was like, I don't know, do you need another real job, another real t- full-time job because you're still going to have the company and everything. But then the more I thought about it was to, to go in and have this opportunity at a school like USC, um, to maybe bring this, what I kind of preached on the road for 38 years and 25 on the Warp Tour of giving back and doing things and doing running sound business, this could be the opportunity because ultimately a lot of those students will be the future of the music business. They will be people out there. So if you could download your brain, as I say when I go in there, you're going to get 38 years and it's going to flood at you. I'm going to only ask you to do a few assignments. They're important to do though. I'm not going to waste your time on a Scantron. But let's, let's dig in deep into this and, and go for it. And I think, you know, when the greatest gratification I'm getting as an individual right now is when they turn in their projects each at the end of semester, everyone has to turn in projects and, you know, I'm going through them. And the first year, I think it was about 80% of the students had baked in some sort of philanthropic element to their brand whether it was their own brand creating a brand managing a brand or building a company it wasn't part of i don't know what a rubric is you know that was a funny thing my daughter had to tell me you know i don't use one i tell you i'm teaching you how to break a rubric i'm not teaching you (laughs) isn't that a cube yeah (laughs) i didn't know and you know i i I guess my philosophy in teaching is i'm i'm not here to teach you to teach you i'm here to make you think and they do and they're turning so this projects just got turned in at 90 percent of them were baked had some terrific. sort of philanthropic element baked into their business plans terrific. and i don't know if that's ever been taught that way before so which spun into this project on what we're going to talk about next the 320 yeah. project yeah, perfect <laughs> you know? perfect segue it's a great segue into yeah. that which you know, outside so of... So would you talk a little bit about the 320 project that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and what happened there was uh, to Linda Bennington, Chester Bennington's wife from Lincoln Park. Uh, Chester Bennington was the, the singer, singer of Lincoln Park. Park who, and, who... Didn't he commit suicide? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, What's the story? He passed a suicide, you know. There's an interesting discussion about committing suicide. I've learned a lot. It's not really, they don't want that term. It's not really a term. You didn't commit suicide. It's no one, it's a mental, it's a mental issue. There's meant it's, it's so, it's, they fell victim to suicide. Um, and she came to me and 
she's I guess Chester really liked they played Warp Tour one time the surprise show to release a record it was the craziest day and it was you know that's another thing about music how you pull things off and keep it a secret from 888 people on a tour and only 12 people knew what we were going to do and we showed up in a parking lot we had this whole hidden stage built and they had come in the night before and no one knew who was going to play on that stage and on a cardboard sign I put Lincoln Park at five so the fans coming in were blown away we had singers that were ready to uh that we had gotten eight singers to, to come and sing a song with them and they had to swear secrecy from their own band to not say what they're going to get to do. It was crazy. And I got, to, you know, I'd spent some time a little bit just casually and at that one event, we spent a bunch of time together. It was super nice. Um, but she came to me and said, you know, I, in the legacy of my husband, I'm, I want to do something, the 320 Project. 320 was Chester's birthday. March 20th was his birthday. And I said, so I listened. And of course, with me, everyone wants to go on tour. Let's create a tour. And I go, I just got, I'm not, I don't think this is ready for it to be a tour, but I think it could become a showcase for you if you want to ever do it in other cities. I was also thinking like, okay, I'm super busy, but wait, maybe I can tie this in with this education because this was last March. And uh, I was like, these students, they seem maybe they're ready for something like this. So I went to Mike Garcia, the head of the department and said, hey, Mike, let me teach a class. In, and have the students help me produce the 320 project. It's an, I don't know, it's not that easy sometimes at USC, you got all this paperwork to fill up, but sure. I'm like, I wanna teach a class. And, and Mike made it happen. Um, and, and 25 students uh, submitted mission statements on why they wanna be evolved. I accepted 20. Um, and their, their role was to help me outline and orchestrate this festival. Um, went down to LA Live, uh, down in Los Angeles, uh, Lee Zeidman was one of my mentors when I was in college, and and said, Lee, I, I you say I say bring me. I always want to, you know, you want me to bring you something down here. I I have an idea. I want to do this mental health community festival. He goes, oh, for free, right? I go, yeah, okay. So he's great. He found me a Saturday, May 9th in 2020. We're going to be holding this event. I went over to my friends at Golden Voice, Paul Tolette and Rick Mueller, who I worked with back in the clubs. And, and I said, you know what? I need Club Novo too, because I really want to use that. And they're like, absolutely, Kevin. This is a great project. So we're holding uh, the 320 Project on May 9th. It's a free community event from 11 to 5 p.m. Uh, we've gotten over 25 organizations that now are hoping for 40 by the time we're done. This was what the kids have gotten to at the end of the semester. And we've outlined a whole... Um, diverse panels on mental health that'll be held in Club Novo, round tables that will be held. Uh, we'll have one-on-one -on -one counseling available through uh, Rise Against Disorder. They're gonna be uh, providing them. So if people need immediate uh, references or referrals, uh, because I believe that we have a lot of resources for mental health, sometimes we just can't find them. Whether you're someone who needs some assistance or a family member that maybe is looking for some resources, or maybe you just want to volunteer and help make your community a better place. Right. So this will be held, free event, and then we're working on doing a, a, a ticketed benefit show that evening at Microsoft Theater. It's also spend, it's spun into some other work we're doing, in, um, and sadly, we've lost nine students this semester at USC yeah. to um, overdoses or suicide. Oh, boy. And... Um, we're holding an event on campus at Bovard Hall on March 9th that'll focus on mental health and addiction. And then that's kind of spun into me next fall helping with uh, Recovery Fest that Macklemore was involved in last year. And I'll help be produ producing that on a date. Oh, wow. So um, it's kind of cool because uh, I think for me, to be honest, my own mental health needed a little fixing. And 
I got tired of the grind of dealing with agents and dealing with booking bands and never really having the sight on the end game. And what we're really about is bringing people together and giving them the best day of their lives. And I wasn't having the a best time putting on these festivals. I, the, the daily grind of this, because the end goal, I knew what I wanted to do, but to get there was becoming more and more difficult. So now it's really cool because it's not really dependent it's dependent on the community coming together and there's a lot of talk about mental health and a lot of people trying to do stuff but this is really an organic grassroots where a lot of people are just bringing one little piece to the table and you know it's interesting to have a a, a class at usc that sometimes maybe looked a little different and those students have had a sound bath they've right. done meditation practices in class right and now they're all going home at Christmas and I've turned them all into hippies. So I don't know. We'll see what, the, what they think after this. But it was, it was, it's that lessons I've learned early on. And it's in reflections on your own life of little things that have kind of sparked you. So you, you've been this impresario of these incredible, successful, critically and commercially rock tours and concerts. And now you're an impresario of festivals surrounding the issues of philanthropy, mental health, helping people. And that's such an incredible thing. It should be nice, you know, but we'll have entertainment. There's going to be a lot of artists performing out in the plaza because I believe people come down and have fun, but they're more than willing to learn while they're there. That's amazing. That's fantastic. I know. We'll see. It's a lot of work. <laughs> It'll be then. Well, you know, I teach a class at USC yeah. on uh, music and mindfulness, right? So yeah. when you said about meditation, how is that, how is that integrated in what you're talking well, about? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have a, a very young uh, person who's working for me who's really just like, I think just got it in her. She's just going to kill it in this business. But she calls me and goes, you know what? We've been trying to think of what to do with the Clive Davis Theater. Because it's a smaller theater, oh, part of the Grammy yes. Museum. Right, right. And she's like, well, maybe we could do half hour sound baths and maybe we can basic meditation techniques so people that might be curious could come in in a in a non-pressured setting and that's part of the 320 that'll be part of the 320 project that's fantastic uh we're also going to be um uh it's it's we're premiering a movie done by a band called blue october the singer right. uh suffered real hard and and, and and hate to say it but a stereotypical story that's coming out on film it'll be uh, released that at that event will be um showing that event at the Regal Theaters right there. Uh, we're looking at having a the music, um, Songs That Saved Our Lives will be an exhibit opening at the Grammy Museum that day of Songs That Saved People's Lives, kind of in tribute to Chris Cornell, Avicii, as well as uh, Chester Bennington. Wow. Hmm. So is there anything we haven't... I mean, I'm sure that fans of the Warp Tour um are going to be mad at me because there's things i didn't elicit from you no. but is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about no not really i think you know we we kind of talked about work in essence is i guess where i get my self-worth in some way i've always been a worker just get up and work just get up and work and you know if you if you are a person that's paying attention and we should all be paying attention to what's going on in this world it could become overwhelming every day you know, this political climate we have. Each day you, you, you read about climate change. And sometimes you feel helpless. But I say, look at sometimes in your own backyard and just make your backyard a little better. Try to do, you know, help one person that right. day. If everyone just turned around and just did one good thing, whether it's walk to, take a walk on the beach and pick up some plastic, whatever, to try to make your community a better place. And then that can start growing and it'll start rubbing off. 
You know, it's start regulating. I think sometimes we pulled back into our own little bubble so much. And I was lucky enough to get this travel this world and be around in the places and sit in truck stops and understand counter views in politics. I understood. I traveled with a lot of people that, you know, didn't agree with me. But you know what? I believe 94% of the people in, in this country truly have the same values and the same beliefs in many ways about taking care of your families, taking care of the people around you, being a better citizen. But we're so controlled by the 3% on each fringe right now that it's overwhelmed the conversation. So we just have to bring the conversation inward each and every day to ourselves. Okay, on that note, that's a beautiful note. Um, I have to ask my co-producer, Hannah, if Hannah has a, because she's such a big fan of yours and the Warp Tour, and did I leave out anything, or did we cover everything? I went into this. Where are some places that they can go right now? Go check out online. Maybe they can't attend the festival. So Hannah's asking if there are any places people can go right now to help with mental health issue. Well, you know, organizations are rising. In our industry, there's a new organization called Backline. A backline is going to be an organization that's available 24-7 to people on the road to have a call-in number if they need some help. Terrific. Um, that's new. The Rise Above Disorder, is just I met them, and they've got a hospital down in Long Beach that's being donated to them that they're turning into the first 24-hour drop-in mental health clinic. Right. Uh, so there are people What's do. it called again? Rise, Rise Above Love. Disorder. Rad. Um, you can go to their website and check it out. Right. Uh, Hope for the Day is, you know, very kind of geared towards that warped audience that there is hope for the day tomorrow. And Johnny Bouchard, and very inspirational to, to our people. Uh, we will be launching the website. It's, it's kind of a scramble right now. Uh, we have a great meeting. You know, we're, we're really putting the nuts and bolts together, and we'll be announcing most of this right in, in the turn of the new year. All right. Well, it's been incandescent <laughs> and a sincere sensation. Thank you very And much. thank you so much again, and good luck with 320. I'll see you there. I'll see you uh, at USC. Yeah, thank and, you very much. Um, it's been beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Well, I hope that was as engaging for you as it was for me. And speaking about hope, I also hope that I'll see you either at the Facebook Live event or at the 320 Mental Health Festival. Please give us a rating, leave a review. Please tell your friends, your acquaintances, anybody you've ever rubbed shoulders with on the street, and we'd really appreciate that. In the meantime, I want to thank the great intern Michael Azuma, the very talented Lonnie Ronaldo, and my star co-producer, the Hannah Bowers. Until next time, we all hope that you can stay safely up in a higher octave, and let's stay in tune, folks.